Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This podcast explores themes of murder and rape. Listener discretion is advised. The victims are typically young women, many of them runaways and prostitutes. The sheer number of murders raises suspicion that a serial killer is at work. The mountains of Washington offer some excellent terrain for hiding bodies. You're not finding a large number of bodies. He said to us, like, why would I change the way that I kill these women? Because it was working. I had a problem with killing, killing women back then. You think of that as an illness? I don't know if it was an illness or just, uh, I just mm-hmm. wanted to kill, so... On July 15, 1982, the strangled body of 16-year-old Wendy Cofield is found floating in Seattle's Green River. A month later, in August, three more bodies are found in the water, then another in the long grass on the riverbank. Police confirm that all five young women are homicide victims. Deborah Bonner, Marsha Chapman, Cynthia Hines, Opal Mills and Wendy Cofield have all been strangled to death. Investigators discover that all of them disappeared from a notorious stretch of highway where women sell their bodies for sex in the shadow of Seattle's SeaTac Airport. Still reeling from the Ted Bundy killings, King County law enforcement's worst fears are realized. Five young women have been killed in the same way, within weeks of each other. There's another serial killer in town. I'm Dr. Michelle Ward, and this is Mind of a Monster, Ted Bundy and the Green River Killer, Episode 2, A Different Kind of Killer. When bodies start showing up in Seattle's Green River in the summer of 82, 
It had been eight years since Ted Bundy terrorized King County. I want to know what it's like when a new nightmare begins in a city still gripped with fear. To get a first-hand account, I talked to Patty Eeks, an attorney with deep roots in King County. Okay, so let's start with you telling us who you are and what your relationship is to the Green River murder case. In 1982, I had graduated from high school and I lived in Tacoma, which is just a little south of Seattle. But I came to school at the University of Washington in the fall of 1982. And that was about a month after the first bodies were found in the Green River. And I was in college and then law school from 1982 until 1989. And during a large portion of that time, Green River and the murders, you know, were front page news. Wow. But I then worked on the Gary Ridgeway prosecution from 2001 until he was sentenced at the end of 2003. I was a King County prosecutor at that time. Did you feel afraid? Because you're certainly the demographic. You were the age and you're a female. What did that feel like? I spent the first couple of years in a sorority, and the school and the sorority was still very much reeling from the Ted Bundy murders that had occurred, you know, just up the street, frankly, from where I lived. So the disappearance of any young women alarmed the community, you know, even though it turned out that a lot of the victims were women who were engaged in another profession, there was no reason to necessarily think that people like me, young women, were necessarily outside the the potential victim pool. And it must have been particularly scary because, as you say, you guys are coming off the heels of the Ted Bundy murders. I mean, you were 12 years old during the 73-74 killings, if I'm correct, and now you're off in college and there's another serial killer. Right. Yeah, it was. And um, Ted Bundy, of course, was also from Tacoma, which happened to be where I grew up. So, you know, the knowledge about these serial killers and, you know, people didn't really understand what was happening because there there aren't that many serial killers. And, of course, Bundy was so notorious. So it was still very much, you know, in the front of mind for a lot of people, even by the time the bodies were starting to be found along the Green River in 1982. Do you feel like security and kind of parenting was ramped up during that time? I'm not so sure about parenting, but there was a great focus on making sure that, you know, we lived in these big sorority houses and that all the doors were always locked. There was just a lot more security than there had been in the recent past. And then, of course, there's a lot of parties and there was, again, just a a focus on, you know, from the guys in the fraternities to make sure that girls got home safely, that people were walked all the way up to their door, seen to go inside their door, those kinds of things. It's natural for the public, and particularly young women like Patty, to be scared. But what's it like for those in law enforcement? What's it like to realize there is another serial killer in Seattle? To explore these questions, I get in touch with Faye Brooks, probing her unique perspective at the heart of the hunt for the Green River Killer. Faye, what is your connection to the Green River Killer case? I'm a retired member of the King County Sheriff's Office. Um, And I was one of the original investigators on the Green River homicide case. As a criminal psychologist, I have an interest in serious crimes, but it's academic. What made you want to go out there and be on the front line working in law enforcement? I knew in high school that I wanted to do something in sociology. So, you know, life happens. I got pregnant, dropped out of college, and my roommate in college at the time 
ended up work, working for the King County Sheriff's Office. And she said, you know, the King County Sheriff's Office is hiring. Um, why don't you try and get on? I applied, took the written test, took the physical test, and I guess the rest is history. I was hired in October of 1978. And in my academy class, there were 26 recruits. And I was the only woman and one of two Black people who were in the academy class. Really? Yes. And at the end of that three months period, I graduated out of the academy at, at the number two spot. That's awesome. I definitely want to talk more about your experience in the sheriff's office, but I'm fascinated by this moment when King County becomes aware that there's another serial killer out there. What was your introduction to the case? Um, I can remember it was a hot Sunday afternoon and I'm at home looking at TV and I see, oh man, detectives are out at the Green River and there's multiple victims there. So I knew going in that the next day was going to be busy. When I got to work the next morning, they hadn't had the opportunity to identify any of the victims at that point. So they were trying to package evidence. And I can remember thinking, okay, if there's three victims found at this site, and then there had been two other victims found, you know, within the previous month further downstream. So we thought, okay, clue, it's a serial killer. And uh, we, I end up identifying a few of the early victims. And one of them was Marsha Chapman. And I'll say her name in memory of her because I had also worked a case shortly before she was killed with her as a victim. I had met her and had talked with her and that was hard for me. I wanted to help identify who had done that to her. So that was a, a commitment of mine. With detectives like Faye, motivated by a personal connection to the case, it's hard to believe that it takes almost 20 years before the killer is caught. Why was Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer, so hard to catch? I return to Faye Brooks. The challenging part of the early investigation and subsequent parts of the investigation is, first of all, they were runaways, so they weren't reported missing. Back in that era, if you were a runaway, you were just a runaway. There also wasn't a system in place where should you find uh, the remains of someone, how could you identify them? So how do you identify these girls as sex workers and runaways? Primarily, it's through dental records or fingerprints. When we had missing people, they would just be missing. At that time, didn't have the protocols in place where if someone was reported missing, you try and track down the dentist so you can get that information and have it on file should the person need to be identified. So Green River Homicide Investigation changed protocol in those two specific areas. Wow. So how did you identify them before that change? If they had a criminal history, and that's primarily how we identified them as sex workers or, or runaways. At first, I'm a little surprised that protocols are only changed in response to the Green River Killer, despite the Ted Bundy abductions. But actually, it makes perfect sense. Almost all of Bundy's victims are high-profile disappearances. The girls are only gone a matter of hours before they're reported missing, sparking a flurry of police and media interest. Many of Gary Ridgway's victims are the polar opposite, 
Runaways who are already missing but haven't been reported, their disappearances are easily dismissed. One approach invites attention, the other completely bypasses it. It's a striking and fundamental difference. Where Gary Ridgway's methods barely ripple the surface, Ted Bundy operates with a splash. Never more so than in the winter of 1978. Well, they're still looking for murder suspect Theodore Bundy, who celebrated New Year's Eve by escaping from a Colorado jail. Under Sheriff Robert Hart says a hole had been cut in the ceiling of his cell for a light fixture. Bundy apparently pushed the light fixture out, climbed through the crawl space to a jailer's apartment, and then walked out. Hart says it is a solid steel cell, except for that small hole. Wait. Stop. Rewind. And he said, I know that if I lost enough weight, this is whispers basically to my ear, I could crawl out that vent and, and escape from prison. In our last episode, Larry Anderson, who was friends with Ted Bundy in Salt Lake City, told me Bundy whispered an escape plan in his ear on a visit to see him in a Utah prison. There is no logic that can explain how he's been able to execute the same plan in a Colorado prison. But clearly, he has escape on his mind every second he's behind bars. Despite a statewide search in Colorado, Bundy manages to flee and makes his way to Florida. He has only one thing on his mind. He stalks the local bars in search of his next victim, but comes up empty. Finally, on January 15, 1978, he discovers the unlocked door to a sorority house. The killer struck first at the Chi Omega sorority house. Police say he simply walked in through an unlocked door. They say he was armed with a heavy oak log. He clubbed and then strangled to death 20-year-old Lisa Levy and 21-year-old Margaret Bowman. At least one of them was raped. Then he brutally beat three more sleeping co-eds, Karen Chandler and Kathy Kleiner. Cheryl Ann Thomas was severely beaten in her apartment six blocks away. Their conditions today fare to serious. Bundy's shocking, frenzied attack at the Chi Omega sorority house rocks Tallahassee, and detectives are wrong-footed by the brutal, random nature of the crime. As a result, Bundy is still at large three weeks later. And on February 9th, he abducts and murders 12-year-old Kimberly Leach. She is Bundy's final victim. Police arrested this 31-year-old man after a high-speed chase Wednesday morning in Pensacola, Florida. He claimed to be a Florida State University law student. But now he has been positively identified as prison escapee Theodore Bundy, a suspect in the rape-murder cases of at least 36 young women. Having lured dozens of women to their deaths in his Volkswagen Beetle, it's ironic that Bundy is in another Beetle the night his reign of terror comes to an end. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. If you're looking for a little extra peace of mind, you might want to check out Simply Safe. Simply Safe was kind enough to send me a home protection system to try out, and I couldn't believe how easy it was to set up. Not only that, I'm kind of a gear nerd, and I was really impressed by how clear the camera was. I also love the smart lock keyless entry because there are a lot of things to remember each day, and my keys aren't always on that list, okay? Not only that, Simply Safe offers a 60 day money back guarantee, and US News and World Report awarded them the best home security systems of 2024. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have that too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/mindofamonster. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Like Ted Bundy before him, Gary Ridgway also preys on young women, but his victim profile is different, making it clear early on that he isn't just a copycat killer. Where Ted Bundy sought out mostly college girls, prowling university campuses and streets around sorority houses, Gary Ridgway takes a different route, snaring sex workers from Seattle's seedy neighborhoods. I asked Tomas Guillen, author of The Search for the Green River Killer, about the area Ridgway is hunting in. Can you tell us a little bit about Pacific Highway, the street life culture? Well, essentially, it's, it's down the road, down a state or two from Alaska, where there was a gold rush and such. And so people would fly into the city to spend their money. And so the Pacific Highway South, the strip, where the uh, airport is, basically became a prostitution strip. And so he's got a lot of motels and hotels, topless joints and you could kind of visualize almost like Vegas sometimes. That was a sense of it. It's a long strip, but basically the girls walked it at night. And so there were girls galore. I mean, that was one thing you could find, uh, just girls at every street corner. If you stopped at a stoplight, they'd sit on the hood of your car. You know, they'd sashay to the window, and that's what it was like at night mm-hmm. there. Over 20 years after Gary Ridgway began abducting and murdering women off the Pacific Highway, 
prosecutors bringing the case against him record every word he says as evidence. In this clip, he describes meeting women on the strip and how he feels about them. So it's usually there, like a C-Tech red line at the, around the bus stop. I'd get out and walk over and talk to them at the bus stop and they'd walk out. It's where I picked up several ladies, I don't know if I killed them or not, at the bus stop in Lyon. I use always the word ladies for prostitutes. They're separate from working class people, basically, to me. I killed all the ladies that are prostitutes. Women are working class. They got jobs, and that's why I didn't kill women that were working. As the hunt for the Green River Killer takes off, the victim profile isn't the only difference between Ted Bundy and Gary Ridgway. Ominously, Ridgway is also far more prolific. While Ted Bundy's killing spree between 1973 and 1974 results in eight tragic deaths, by the end of 1982, just six months after the first body is found in the Green River, Ridgway has taken 13 lives. In response, King County Police set up the Green River Task Force, an investigative unit dedicated entirely to catching the killer. The task force's green jackets become a regular and iconic image on TV news in the 80s. Every time another body is discovered, investigators are broadcast hacking their way through the undergrowth searching for evidence. I talked to Faye Brooks about being on the Green River Task Force. Faye, how was being on a task force different from working a more routine investigation? Oftentimes when you're a detective, you have a caseload and you work on your caseload, and somebody else has a caseload. And every now and then you may compare notes because something may pique an interest or may be like, oh, there's something that's similar to yours than is to mine. This particular case, everybody on it was focused on one thing, catching the person who's doing this. And so there was a big camaraderie working on the task force. The Green River Task Force turbocharges the investigation. They have resources, money, and manpower. One of the priorities is to form a suspect profile, a side of the investigation with which I am fascinated. What makes a serial killer? To explore Ted Bundy and Gary Ridgway's formative years, first I talked to New York Times bestseller Rebecca Morris. So Ted was born illegitimate, and his mother, Louise, left him at the home in Vermont, put him up for adoption. The story is that her father made her go back and pick up Ted. So there was at least three or four months there when he was an abandoned child, you could say. But then the first years, he lived at his grandparents' house with his mother. It's really hard to sort out with somebody like Ted Bundy what is myth and what is true. But one of the myths is that he was told his mother was a sister and his grandparents, because of their fear of the shame and stigma of their daughter having an illegitimate baby, his grandparents had told friends, oh, we had a late-in-life baby, you know? But something happened, and when he was four years old, his relatives sent Ted and his mother away to Tacoma, Washington, to live. But the other, the really important firsthand information was that his grandfather, who he'd lived with, you know, was a violent person, swung cats, had a stash of pornography, was involved with domestic violence, and that Ted's grandmother had been institutionalized more than once, had had electric shock treatments. So there was a lot of dysfunction and mental illness in that family where he was the first years. Okay, 
what happened after that? So Ted and his mother come west, and then she married and had four children. And I've always thought, boy, that must have been kind of tough for Ted because for a long time it had been just he and his mother. And suddenly, you know, he had a stepfather that he didn't really have anything in common with. He was he was blue-collar, and, you know, the very thing Ted hated most was being blue-collar. That wasn't the life he wanted. One of the people I found that had never been interviewed was Ted's best friend when they were eight, nine, ten years old. And they lived near Ted, and she has stories saying that Ted would take little girls out in the woods and pee on them. Or, you know, he loved to scare people. He'd hide and then jump out. You know, it, there was always just something kind of odd and show-off about, about Ted. Bundy's disturbed childhood certainly fits some ideas about early life trauma contributing to violent behavior later in life. However, the question of nature versus nurture is outdated. Really, we should be talking about nature and nurture. Genetic factors are incredibly important. But we need to remember that it's only in very rare cases that a combination of genes and early life trauma results in this level of violent behavior. To see if Gary Ridgway fits the mold, I discuss his upbringing with Terry Rochelle. Tell me how you knew Gary Ridgway. Gary was the brother of one of the guys that I knew very well, Greg. And we used to all walk to school together. Greg was going with the girl that was one of my best friends. Did you live on the same street or the same area? We lived in the same area. We lived on 176th and they lived on 175th. Not exactly the same neighborhood, but kind of the, just the same area. Close enough we could all walk together. But, you know, he was, he was very quiet in those days. I mean, really and truly, you'd hardly know he was there. He was just kind of a quiet guy. How old was he when you first knew him? I would have been about 15, so he was probably 16 when I first met him. And then, you know, 17. And I think my sister kind of had a little crush on him. She was sitting outside the principal's office for being in trouble one day. And Gary was sitting out there in the hallway as well. And so the principal said, you're both doing detention after school. So they did. and. You know, it was starting to get kind of dark out on the way home, and so he says, well, I'm going to walk you home because it's dark out here and, you know, I don't want you to have to walk by yourself. Because we lived by a lot of woods. You had to go about mm, almost a half a mile by woods. And it was pretty frightening in any time, so being by yourself at night would have been a stretch for me or anybody. <laughs> so he walked her home and she, he carried her books and everything. Oh my, that is terrifying. How do you feel about that now? When I think about how she walked home with him now, you think about maybe one of us could have been his first victim back in those days. You know, you never know. I mean, I don't know how old he was when he started killing women, but could have been sooner <laughs> with someone who was in my family, and that would have been horrible. Was he hitting on your sister, do you think? Did he have a thing for the girls at that age? I'm sure he must have, or he either loved him or hated him. I'm not sure which, you know, I mean... Probably a love-hate relationship is what I guess. His mom, my mom and her friend would go to the PTA meetings at school and his mom would come and she had a beehive hairdo and makeup like nobody else in, in rent and short, short skirts, high heels and everything. And they all of them would just be like 
oh my God, who is that? You know. Did you meet his mother? I never met her. I did not meet her. I saw her one time though. She was out on her porch. I was at my girlfriend's house next door. She was out on her porch and she was screaming at her husband, just yelling at him. And that's the only time I ever saw her at all. But she was really screaming at the top of her lungs at him. And was it a strict house? I think their mother did all the punishing. I think she was the one that really did run the house. I've heard that his dad was kind of tough on him as well, but I think his mother really was tough over all of them. Gary Ridgway's demeanor as a young man certainly doesn't give any clues about who he'll become. Being shy or quiet is most definitely not a concern. So far, so normal. But in this clip, Ridgway talks to investigators about his feelings toward his mother, and they're not warm and fuzzy. When did you think about having sex with your mother? When? 14 or 15, I think. I'd see her out sunbathing and just a fantasy of wanting to uh, have sex, to touch her, feel her body, have her show me how to have sex. Because um, mother's teaching a lot of things, you know. She loved her, uh, loved her body, and it would be uh, some way to defile what she's always loved. Maybe slice her up or something, defile her, hurt her appearance to hurt her more than what she's done to me. As a criminal psychologist, raw, unscripted recordings like this one of Ridgway are fascinating. But the question of nature and nurture can be misleading in its simplicity. When we compare Bundy and Ridgway's formative years, there are similarities, particularly dysfunction in their relationships with their mothers. But that is a small piece of the puzzle. There can be no argument, however, about where they grew up. I asked Tom Guillen if a childhood in King County might be an ingredient that made them kill. What are your thoughts about how and why King County was home to two serial killers at once? I mean, you don't think it was something like the ambiance, the landscape of the time, the policing. What are your thoughts? Well, I agree it's unusual, but I don't think it's in the water. You know, it's uh, or the Kool-Aid or the lemonade or the wine. You know, you, some people think that because there are a lot of woods here and people live outdoors, that in fact that's a breeding place. I would disagree, you know. I, I think it's more, you've got individuals that was something neurologically wrong with them, and then the environment shaped them. Tom is spot on. If Bundy and Ridgway already have the genetic makeup to kill, then any influence King County has on them hasn't come from the mountains and forests. It's from the neighborhoods they grew up in. Terry Rochelle grew up in the same neighborhood as Ridgeway and can tell me exactly what it was like. Well, I grew up right up the hill from um, SeaTac Airport. And, you know, when we were growing up, we didn't even think about prostitutes or anything. But then after I got out of high school and you started seeing more and more, the area kind of got more seedy. I was working at Boeing and I'd come home from work and you'd see the girls walking up and down the street. If you went to Wendy's, you could sit in their window there and watch the girls work. Perhaps the nature of Gary Ridgway's crimes is partially a reaction to both his mother and growing up by the Pacific Highway Strip. It's on this strip that Marie Malvar is working in April 1983. It hasn't been long since Marie moved out of the house, and she still works shifts at the family restaurant. What Marie's family doesn't know is that she's got a second job working on the street, where her boyfriend is also her pimp. On April 30th, he watches as Marie gets into a red pickup truck and notices a distinctive patch of primer on the paintwork. 
Marie's boyfriend, Pimp, follows the truck to keep an eye on Marie, but he loses it at a red light. She doesn't come back that night or even the next day. Tomas Guillen reported on the disappearance. Marie Malvar's dad went and found the pimp, and he says, you better tell me where my daughter is or where you saw her. Well, the last thing was a pickup picked her up, and they turned left up the hill, and basically she was never seen again. So the dad says, you, you take me where you saw this truck. So they go driving around the neighborhood looking for the truck. Do they find it? They see the pickup truck at a house. Well, it turns out at the end it is Gary Ridgway's house. So they go tell police. Detectives are dispatched to the house. They talk to Ridgway, and of course, he shrugs off the allegations. The local police detective files a report, but it isn't shared with the county homicide unit until months later. The opportunity to add Ridgway to the list of suspects less than a year into the two-decade-long hunt for him is overlooked. When Marie goes missing, she's one of Ridgway's first 20 or so victims. It is believed he killed around 70 women in total. So many lives could have been saved if he'd been thoroughly investigated at this point. What else is it that gets him off the hook? I asked Patty Eeks what he's like in person. You know, the first time we met him, I'd only seen him in court up until that point. And he was so incredibly unimpressive, to be honest. I mean, he's not only not physically very uh, big, but he was also just disarming in how, I don't know, non-threatening is probably the wrong word, but he was kind of goofy, I guess is what I would say. And I think that nobody really anticipated that because, again, what they say about serial killers is most of the time they're highly intelligent. And I remember we all just kind of looked at each other, the prosecutors, and we we're like, uh, that's the guy eluded you for 20 years? Because he's like dumb as a rock. Ridgway might be dumb as a rock, but his all-American blue-collar credentials and unassuming demeanor gets him off the hook when police come calling about Marie Malvar. He's left free to keep on killing. Why would you need to kill two in one day? In, in other words, what were the urges in terms of what you were feeling that day had to be different from other times when you would only kill maybe once a week or once every couple of days? My urge to kill, my need to kill, mm -hmm. overpowered my uh, logic. I know one time I went and killed one, and uh, a couple hours later, it was early enough, so I just went back out to the same place, and there was... Actually, I don't know if I did kill two in one day, but I, I might have killed, I know I killed one one day and one the next day. And on the record, there's two done, there's two, on the, two disappeared on the same day. So it's possible, I, I, sometimes I went back out looking if it was early enough. Okay. It was only nine o'clock at night, I'd probably go out for another hour and, and look for another one. The public is gripped by fear. Investigators are out of ideas, and the story is all over the news. King County is desperate for a break in the case. What happens next shocks everyone. Green River Task Force Detective Bob Keppel receives a letter from a wannabe consultant. The letter has come from a cell on death row in Florida. The sender is Ted Bundy. Next time, as the Green River Killer's body count keeps climbing, I'll look at the public outcry in a city under siege and explore what's going on with Ted Bundy's offer to help crack the case. Mind of a Monster, Ted Bundy and the Green River Killer is brought to you by Arrow Media for ID, 
Your host is Dr. Michelle Ward. You can follow our show wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd love it if you could take a second to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.